Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. This morning is going to be the final series, or the final message in our mini-series about the three-eye life, we've called it. Sort of, what does it mean to be a missional people? And we've looked two weeks ago about the idea of interceding, being people of prayer, who who are praying for others constantly. Last week was investment, and we looked at Paul's sort of idea that to live is Christ. The whole purpose for our existence as as followers of Jesus is that he would receive glory, and the way he would get that is we would live our lives like poured out for other people, investing with our time, talent, and treasure. And so this morning, we're finishing out with the idea of invite, invitation. And the encouragement the whole time has been uh, for each one of us to identify three people, three people in our lives, in our circle of influence, maybe in our families, who, who right now are far from God. And so it's been a reminder each week, and I'd encourage you again, think about that. Who are your three people whose God has placed in your life who you can be interceding for and investing in and inviting? And one of the things you'll notice, hopefully you already have, is that it's, it's actually kind of difficult to preach uh, one of these like in isolation because they're all sort of intermingled and woven together because they should be. It's not as if these are three separate ideas, but they're all uh, intermingled together. And so what do we mean by invitation? Well, here, here, here's the big picture. Because of Christ and because of what Jesus has done, because of his life, death, and resurrection— when we put our faith in him, we are then invited by him to participate in his mission, to participate in proclaiming the gospel. That is, that is what the invitation is. And that looks a lot of different ways. 
And so when you come to a service on a Sunday morning and you hear word, the word invite, I think what, what most naturally comes to my mind is the idea of inviting people to a Sunday service, to a celebration service. And that's really good. And if you're thinking and you're, you're praying for and investing in those three people and, and there's an opportunity for us to like invite those people to come to a service, that's, that's incredible. And last week, actually, Jeremiah touched on this, and I'm going to steal it because it's worth stealing and saying again, that there's this, this uh, new book that came out recently all about de-churching. And it kind of talks about the idea that there's all these people in America who, who have like, some sort of church experience in their past. And for whatever reason, a lot of those people are no longer a part of a local church. There's been this de-churching. And one of the things they found in this book was that you know, I think we might think that it's because of these like, huge angry reasons that people leave the faith and make these drastic life changes when in reality, one of the things they found in the book was that it, a lot of times it's just like life gets busy or there's an inconvenience and they stop going and then they're like still not going. And it kind of just happens on accident. And this statistic was shared. Uh, maybe you weren't here last week or maybe we just need to hear it again. 51% of de-churched evangelicals say that they would be willing to return to church if someone asked them. That, that's kind of crazy. It's kind of surprising and a little bit encouraging in, in some weird ways. I, you guys might know I, I was a, in student ministry for a long time. Um, and I was at a, a student conference one time uh, for youth pastors. And there was this research organization that was kind of presenting and they shared something similar. So for our middle school high school people in here, uh, this was the stat that they shared to students. They said, 45% of all students, not just de-church, like all students who don't know the Lord, all students, 45% of those students, if they were invited to church by somebody who loved them and loved Jesus, they would be like really willing to go. And, and so it's, it's kind of similar, but it's, it's this idea that, that's kind of encouraging is there this hostility towards things of the faith and the church in our world? Yes, absolutely. But if we have this understanding that that's all there is, I mean, we're, we're, there's, there's gospel fruit to be had, and a lot of times people are, are just wanting to be invited. So, invite them. See you guys next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's not the point. But we should invite people. We should do that. That's right and good. But that's not all there is to invitation. It's inviting people into our lives to actually know people and spend time with people and have people in our homes. This is something that Crosspoint does. I've experienced it for like the last eight weeks, and it's awesome. As someone who is still being welcomed into this community, the coffees and the lunches and the dinners and the homes that we've been in, it's, it's like a really awesome thing. And it's the idea of inviting people into community. And I want to touch on this really quickly. Jesus says that the world will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Which I've always thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> Jesus sort of stakes a lot on the love that the church has for one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I kind of think like just in my flesh, I'm like, shouldn't it be like they'll know you're my disciples and that, that the gospel is true by, by the things that we say or by our services or by our mission? And, and he sort of stakes a lot. <laughs> On, on the love that the disciples have for one another. That there is a great like, evangelistic thing behind Christian community. That means that when somebody who's not a part of the church 
gets invited into a community group or gets invited to go out to dinner with like a group of people from the church and they, like in order to see the love that people have for one another, you have to be around them. And so when we're not inviting people into the community, Jesus, Jesus kind of says that's a big deal. That there's something really evangelistic about simply inviting people into the community of God. And so all those things are right and true, but uh, really at the heart, what invitation is, is gospel proclamation. It's, it's speaking the gospel. It's inviting people to Jesus himself. And so that's what we're going to spend most of our time on. Those other things are right and true, um, and we've discussed them a little bit, but we're going to look this morning at those kind of critical moments. Maybe you've experienced them. Maybe as you have three people in your mind that you've been investing and interceding for, um, you kind of think of, man, what would that look like to enter in and to like invite them to Jesus? Because that's something different, right? Like it's really not that hard or risky to be like, I'm going to start praying for this person, interceding with like good motives. It's it's really not that risky. Even to invest, that feels like an easier step of like, okay, let's, let's spend time together. Let's go out to dinner. Let's this and that. But, but like inviting someone to Jesus, it just feels, I understand, I understand the theology behind it, but it just feels like a different thing. Like, how does that even happen? How do you cross that bridge from let's get dinner to like, let's talk about your sin? <laughs> you know, like that feel like, did you catch the game last night? Yeah. You know, what's worse than losing is losing your soul in eternity. Like, whoa, dude, you know, like, why are you being a weirdo? You know, like how, how does that, that feels like a different thing. So um, this morning, that's what we're going to look at. And here's the goal that, okay, would we be reminded of the gospel? First and foremost, we say it every week, that's why we're here. But maybe even that we would be equipped with some tools to enter into those critical moments, to like enter into those, not just inviting people to church, but us as believers, inviting people to Christ at Starbucks, on your, on your couch, wherever it may be. So let's pray and ask God to do it. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the goodness of your gospel and that you're gracious enough and patient enough to form us weekly, daily, moment by moment, more and more into the image of your son. God, I pray that as we look at your word that we would be reminded of your goodness and shaped by it. I do pray, God, for, I I pray for all the people that are represented in in those threes, the people that have been being prayed for in this room, the people that have been being invested in. I pray for the future conversations, God. I pray that there would be conversations with those names that people are thinking of right now and that you would encourage and equip us to be bold in those because of your goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So um, like we read, we'll be in Acts 17, so you can stay there. And really what we're doing is we're just looking at one particular way that Paul enters into that proclamation, that gospel proclamation. So just a little bit of context. We're in Acts. Jesus has already been crucified, buried, risen from the dead. He's appeared resurrected to the disciples, and he's given them the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And it's important, and we don't always talk about it, but after he gives the Great Commission, Jesus says, wait. Because you can't actually do it yet. 
wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Then you will actually have the ability to like step in and do some of the things that we're talking about. And so in the beginning of Acts, the Holy Spirit actually comes, the very, the very person that enables these things to happen. And this like gospel revolution breaks out, and the gospel is being preached, and, and the Apostle Paul is traveling and planting churches and preaching the gospel. And so um, in Acts 17, Paul's in his second missionary journey. And he's, he's been with Timothy and Silas, and they've been in Thessalonica and Berea. And where we pick up the story today, uh, Paul has gone ahead to Athens. And Timothy and Silas are like, they're, they're coming, but they're not with him yet. And so he's kind of waiting. Look, um, we're going to go a little bit backwards. Look at verse 16 with me, a little bit before um, where we started. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's Timothy and Silas. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So just pause right there. Paul, he actually doesn't have like this huge objective. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas. That's what he's doing. And as he waits, he begins to observe the culture around him. It says that his spirit was provoked. Like God, God provoked his spirit as he saw the idolatry in the city. So if you're taking notes, number one is Paul saw and was burdened by the idolatry of Athens. The idolatry of a people far from God. And last week, Jeremiah mentioned this idea of when we, when we think about mission, and we think about lostness and brokenness and people far from God, it's very easy and almost natural to put those people at the center of mission. To put our three, even. These people that we love and care for, to put them at the center of mission. And it's tricky because there's truth in that. But what we said is, actually what's at the center is not these people, but it's the glory that God could and should receive from these people. It's God's glory. And Paul sees in Athens a ton of people who are far from God and a culture that is wicked and idolatrous, where God is being robbed of glory. And when did, when did he see it? What was he doing? He was just waiting. Like, he was just there. So a few weeks ago, I was at Costco. Praise. It's a wonderful place. Okay? We still haven't got our Costco membership. I know it's right here. Working on it. Okay? Um, but a couple weeks ago, I was at Costco. And we're doing our thing. Clara and the boys are with me. And, and um, I think we had my mom's card. That's important. If you don't have a member, membership, take somebody else's card. It's fine. Um, but that's why we were there. We were there illegally. Okay? <laughs> is a confession time for me. Thank you. Um, but we're there, and the, the, we leave, and then it's like, hey, let's grab a pizza for lunch. And so I, I'm like, all right, you guys stay in the car. I'll run back in and grab one. And I go back in, and uh, I'm waiting in line. I order a pizza, and they're like pretty backed up. They say, it's going to be 15 minutes. It's going to be 20 minutes. And so I'm like, all right, no worries. And I, I go like this. And I'm like, oh, man, I left my phone in the car. My phone's with Claire and the boys. And I legit almost was like, I have to go back and get my phone if I'm going to stand here for 10 minutes. <laughs> but I didn't. And I wasn't with anybody. And I didn't know anybody. And I was like, I'm just going to stand here. And it sounds silly, but it was weird and awesome. Because I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anything to look at. I just had 20 minutes on the clock. And I was standing in Costco. And it wasn't planned. And you just kind of start looking at people. 
and you just kind of start like looking around at what is this place? And it's a joke, but it's like a funny little moment in our culture of like everyone going around frantically, like trying to get their stuff and getting in front of people. And how do I get my things and get out of the way? And I have to consume, consume. And, and these parents are fighting over here. And, and, and like, it was like really interesting and weird and awesome just to stand there for a minute. And when, when I was like interrupted, you kind of look around and, and lift your eyes a little bit and see the culture around you. So just a, a simple question to consider is like, when's the last time you stood in Costco? No, I'm kidding. Not that. The, the, the question to consider is, when's the last time that you actually paused long enough to like lift your eyes and see the culture around you and see the people around you and see the spiritual reality around you? But oftentimes, we're, our lives are so full and we're so busy that, that we just stay focused in on the urgent and what we have to do today. And that's not bad, but, but Paul's, the provoking of Paul's spirit came out of waiting and having his eyes lifted to see the spiritual reality. Do you see, like, the idolatry of our culture? Like the, like the idolatry of self and self-care, and and living your dreams, and fulfilling your dreams, and all about you, 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 or even the busyness, or the idolatry of constant entertainment, that I remembered a time I didn't have my phone for 15 minutes, that that's even a story, (laughs) that we're constantly entertained, or the idolatry of sexuality, or the idolatry of building our little kingdoms, and our little worlds, and our little jobs, and our little, like, building our perfect little See, Paul sees the idolatry, and so do we. And what happens next is it leads to a, a sincere burden for Paul. Like he's, he's provoked, something is off, he's got to do something about it, he's stirred up about it. So when I honestly ask the question, do, do I see the brokenness and the idolatry in our city, in our world? I think sometimes. And I should see it more than I do. But when I see it, does it lead me to like a real burden for people and for God's glory? And I wish the answer to that was was better than it probably actually is. For God's glory to be known. So God, would you give give us a greater burden? I think that's a beautiful prayer. Give us a greater burden to see you glorified. So we move on from uh, verse 16. He, Paul begins to do what he does. He, he goes to the synagogues. He goes to the marketplace. And he, he goes to preach the gospel. Preach Jesus and the resurrection is what it says. And so he's kind of gaining some uh, momentum in those places. And people say, hey, this, you, you need to go over here. You need to go uh, preach in the Areopagus. And so number two, Paul addresses the Athenians' gospel gap. You can jump down to verse uh, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and we have to pause because that's a weird word, okay? And so here's what that means. Maybe you know, but I didn't, and I learned this week, so I'm going to tell you, okay? So here's here's what that is, all right? So it's an actual place in Athens, and it's a giant limestone rock, basically, where 
where like they would have these gatherings. There were places people could sit. My mind went to uh, Red Rocks in Colorado. It's probably not the same, but it's what I thought of. Okay, um, a commentary said this: the Areopagus was responsible for various political, educational, philosophical, and religious matters, as well as for legal proceedings. Sometimes, so it was a regular place uh, where culture happened. And think of the Greek culture: it's intellectual, it's philosophical, and as we've already seen, it is full of idolatry polytheism. You've heard the Greek gods and all the stories. And this is the place where people would come together, share philosophical ideas and debates. It's literally named after a Greek god. And so here stands Paul, right in the middle of this city, in the heart of the idolatry, before these people, after being brought to them. Verse 22. Here's what Paul says. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's, like, he's, he's almost like playing to his crowd a little bit. He's connecting with them. He's like, hey, I've been in the city. I've been here for days. I've, I've walked the streets. I've seen the temples. I've seen the idols. I see that you have like this, this thing inside of you that knows there is like that, that the divine is there. And you like want to experience it. He, he's kind of like validating in some ways that longing. Now there are sinning in it, they're rebelling in it, but the longing is there. He goes on, I, f- I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. It's, it's like, I see even that, that the system that you have, it doesn't even totally work. You yourselves say that like, hey, there's this like unknown thing, and we're just going to kind of have this unknown God as a catch-all for in case we miss anything. It's incomplete. It's, it's lacking. This longing that you're operating out of it, it doesn't actually work. He goes on. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, like, I have good news for you. God is not unknown. He has made himself known. So he, he's kind of able to see the gap that these people have in the way that they're living in their idolatry to identify some some, some good in it, but that it's, being, it's leading them into rebellion against God, into sin. When he's able to see how it actually should lead them to the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to them. And so he goes on, and we, we read it. I'm going to read it one more time, all at once, and then we'll go back and talk about it. But think of the boldness that Paul's in this new city. He's like the only Christian there. He's brought to this public place where people are judging him, people are critical of what he's going to say. You, you can think about, as we read this, what would sort of hit like a Greek philosopher sitting there, like, a, like somebody sitting there, like what, what aspect of this sermon would really irritate or hit a nerve? Think about that setting as we read this. Paul says, verse 24, and we'll read through the uh, verse 31. The God, already offensive, the God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place 
that they should seek God and perhaps even feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as gold or silver or stone or image formed by art or the imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you hear the, do you hear the boldness? Do you, can you think about how those people might have responded to some of those claims? That there is one God as he stands in a city full of temples and idol worship to many. That he's complete in himself. This one God is fully self-sufficient. He's created and is sustaining the world. It's not some back and forth that the gods need this from us and the gods give us this. He needs nothing. He has created and established and actually he gives life. And every single one of us, regardless of how we respond to this claim, is totally and utterly dependent on this God for every breath that we have. And where is he? He's not far off. He's not unknowable. He's not waiting on you to act right. He's near. And yes, you've been wrong. You've been living in sin. You've been an idolatrous nation. And so repent and believe the gospel because there is coming a day when he will judge the world. And it is all because of a man who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. You can think about how that message sat that day with those people, with the hearers. Tim Keller used to describe the gospel like a diamond, right? And, and like when you hold up a diamond to the light, you can, like it's beautiful, right? And, and when you see like the different facets of it, you see a different angle of how good it is. And when the light hits it over here, you see a different angle. And it's always the same diamond. And so Paul, Paul is not preaching a different gospel than he did in Thessalonica earlier or in Berea. He's just holding up the same gospel in a way that the people of this culture really needed to hear, in a way that it would connect with their specific brokenness, with their specific idolatry. It's the same bad news and good news and the call to repent, that forgiveness of sins is found only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And the specific good news in this passage is that he has made himself known and he is near. The one God. And you know what the most amazing part of this passage is? You read the next few chapters, some people believed. Some mocked. Others said, hey, I want to hear more about that. Which is kind of interesting. But some people actually believed this foreign man standing boldly and saying things that were like a lot of the time offensive and proclaiming the truth of God, God brought death to life in some of those people. That's the response of the call of God. When we hear the grace of God, the response is repentance. 
And so what is it for those of us who hear the truth of God, who hear the gospel, and who repent? Man, it's grace. It's unbelievable grace. Not even just that your sins would be forgiven, but that your sins would be like forgiven and you would be made whole and new and that you would be given the righteousness of Jesus. That when God looks on you, he doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see like you're stumbling after uh, following him. He doesn't see the sins of your past, even the sins of your future. When God looks on you, he sees the righteousness of Christ that you didn't earn. That's good news. And yet functionally, we live as though, like, I know God loves me, but I have to do a little better for him to like me. That's not the gospel. When we stop and dwell about the grace of God, what he has accomplished, the response is worship and God glorified, which is what we said at the very beginning. It's the grace of the gospel. And so Paul serves in this passage, in Acts 17, as a a really awesome example of gospel contextualization. That diamond. Holding that diamond just right for people to hear like the, the aspect of the gospel that really connects with their brokenness. And he actually does it to like a whole culture, which is really cool. But that's actually like a, a way that we can be people of invitation relationally. I, I think of the person who maybe is one of your three. Think of your three who has only experienced terrible relationships, who has been wronged and hurt and abandoned, when you get to tell that person about a Savior who will never let them down, a Savior who will love them better than any human could ever possibly love them, that's beautiful good news to that person. Or the parent who's like crushed under this like oppressive thing of like, I have to be a perfect parent. And you preach the gospel that's like, you actually don't have to be a perfect parent. Your children have a perfect parent, and your job is just to point them to him. That feels like relief. That's good news. Or to the person who's obsessed with like getting their life just right, and their work, and their family, and their finances, and their vacation time, and, and like is trying to get it just right, but it actually is never just right. And it won't be. Because we're, we're trying to build these little kingdoms that are perfect. And we're living for the wrong kingdom. And, and when you get to tell that person, you were actually made for a greater kingdom. You were made to build a better kingdom that will be perfect. That there is repentance in that. So as you think about your three that you're interceding for, you're investing in. Man, what, what part of the gospel might be especially sweet to them? You know them. What would it be like? And I would ask you this, what, what part of the gospel was really beautiful to you when you first repented and, and believed? I'll tell you, because we, we were all there. One of the things, and this is, not, this is not saying this is the whole gospel, this is just the way people are, right? One of the things that was really profound for me when I came to faith, I was in eighth grade. And I heard the gospel preached in a way that made sense to me and and that I was like helpless on my own before God. No matter how well I behaved, that that I was cut off and Jesus loved me enough to come on a rescue mission for me and redeem me and put that righteousness on me by no doing of my own. And that actually he would do that and then turn around and give me 
like purpose. That was, that was it for me in eighth grade. God, you've given me actually like a, a purpose, a mission that my little life is no longer just about my little life. Like it, it matters for eternity. And it matters for the people around me. And so I'll, I'll never forget, like that's not the whole gospel, but it, it really resonated with me. That in Christ, I had a brand new purpose for my whole life. And so what was it for you? I would encourage you to think about that. And so this, this whole gospel contextualization sounds really cool. Talk about the diamond. That's awesome. It's a, it's a biblical thing, as we've seen. And it's a, sometimes a helpful tool or a grid to think through. But we can also get lost in it, right? This, this idea of, of being people who can see needs and apply the gospel, it's right and good, but it's, it's far from the a holistic biblical understanding of evangelism, of, of proclamation. So number three is this. The gospel frees us from believing lies about proclamation. Because I can take a good thing, this idea of, of like contextualizing the gospel to the people in my life, and I can make it like the only thing. And sometimes I can think, oh, okay, I can do that. I've actually never thought like that. Maybe that's the thing that's been going wrong. Maybe if I say just the right thing at just the right time, maybe then it'll be like way easier. And that's a lie. Or I can do the opposite and just think, no way. I am not going to win anybody by crafty speech and a cool strategy and trying to like, I don't even want to talk to people, not let alone do, <laughs> do, do this thing. And when it comes down to it, there's these moments where we have these opportunities to be faithful proclaimers. And oftentimes, we're just quick to believe lies in those, in those critical moments. And I tried to think of, I tried to think of some. And, and so here's just a few. I mean, just a fear of like how that, what if that conversation goes bad? What if they don't respond? What if it's awkward? What if, what if, what if? And insecurity of like, I, I, don't, I don't know enough. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? What if I feel ridiculous? Sometimes it's just a, a selfishness and we don't even have eyes to see the things around us. But have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a moment where you know there's like this opportunity and just all this stuff starts happening in your heart? All these fears, all these lies, and it's like... I know I should, but I don't know how. And I like, ah. I've, I've been there. And so uh, one, of, one of my favorite passages in Scripture is uh, when Jesus walks on water. And you, you've probably heard the story. Jesus is preaching, and then he goes up on the hill uh, to pray by himself, and the disciples are out in a boat, and he comes walking on the water to, to see them. And they're terrified. They think it's a ghost. And he tells them who he is. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, like, command me to come out. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat. And Jesus, like, makes him walk on water, which is not possible, just so we're clear. <laughs> and, and this starts to happen. And then, and then Peter starts to look around and be like, this isn't possible. And he starts to see the wind and the waves, and he sinks. And, and Jesus is still right there, and he comes and he, he saves him. He says, why, why did you doubt? Jesus is right there. And, and the idea is that Jesus 
can do whatever he wants. He is God. He is that one God who Paul preached about, totally sovereign over the laws of nature and everything. But here's the deal. In those critical moments, when all that stuff is going on in my, in my chest and I know I, I could like enter in, I'm quick to look around and be like, this is impossible. I'm quick to see the wind and the waves of like, I can't do this. What if? Uh, uh, uh. Quick to say this is impossible. And you know that it is, right? All of what we're talking about is actually impossible. Evangelism, invitation, gospel contextualization. It is only Jesus that sustains and does the whole thing. And when we get focused on ourselves and our insecurities and our roles in it, that's not what it's about. It's so not about us. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. We all were. And I, I can't make dead things come to life, and you can't make dead things come to life, no matter your strategy, no matter the truth you tell to your fear. You can't do it. It is only Jesus who does the whole thing. Paul, standing there in the midst of those people, he can't make these rebels against God not rebels, no matter how well he preaches. And yet, by some beautiful invitation of grace, we are invited to be proclaimers of the gospel with all of our insecurities and all of our fears. We're invited by God to be proclaimers of his gospel. I had a, I had a professor um, in my undergrad who said that he's told this story about when he was in seminary. And he says, when I was in a preaching class in seminary, my professor took us out to this graveyard. And he put a box there and he said, now I want you to stand up and I want you to preach until dead people start getting out of the grave. And they're like, ah. And he said, I just want you to know that this is actually what happens when you enter into these critical moments. That no amount of craftiness, no perfect thing at the right time, no amount of like humor, no amount of really connecting with people, it is only God who can make dead things come to life. And so we have to be people who would beg God to do what only he can do and then be faithful. That's what he's given us. Beg God to do what only he can do and then trust him and trust what he says. To keep our eyes fixed on him, not looking to ourselves, but fixed on Christ. So maybe, maybe you're here um, and you've never actually heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've never actually heard that there is a God who loves you enough to pursue you, not when you got your life together, but when you were running from him. And he pursued you and said, I, I love you and I want you. Actually, I died for you. I've taken the thing that separates you from me and I've paid for it and it's gone. And all you have to do is come to me and I will give you life. I've been giving you life the whole time, Paul reminded us. So so come to him. Let today be the day. Repent. Turn from the idolatry. Turn from what you've been living for that's not actually been working, as Paul reminded us, and turn to your creator. But many of us here have received that call. And I would encourage you just to hear God's invitation today to, to more fully like take hold of your identity as a proclaimer of the gospel. 
No matter your track record, no matter how good you feel at that, it doesn't matter because God has said that you are. And it actually doesn't have anything to do with how well you do it. To pray that, God, would you give us eyes to actually see the spiritual reality around us? Keep us from living like this. It's so easy. God, lift our eyes. We want to see things the way that you see them. God, give us a burden that a lot of times we don't have for your glory, for people to come to know you and that you would receive glory. And God, give us boldness to be faithful in those critical moments when all, when all those lies come up and all that stuff happens. God, give us boldness to be faithful, to be people that say, our, God, our whole life is on the altar. In you, we live and move and have our being. You have given us everything. You've created everything. So Lord, if you want us to be, more, to be a people who are proclaimers, to invite people in, to make space in our life to actually know people so that we can actually think about how the gospel might speak to their lives, then Lord, our life is on the table. Nothing's going to get in the way of that. It's, it's yours. Lord, if it's inviting somebody in to, to come to Sunday that I don't want to do that and it feels weird, Lord, my life is on the table. I'll do it because I trust you. Or to enter into those relationships to enter into those critical conversations. Because here's the thing. There is something really, really, really beautiful about that worship. Because that's what it is. When you're faced in a situation and and God's calling us to do something and and it feels like death and we don't want to and we say, God, I'm going to do it anyway because I trust you. You are worth it. That's worship. And so I think about the worship that could take place in this church, as we even think about our three people, how might you like step into new worship in conversation and becoming a proclaimer? I know that God loves all of our worship. I know. But that feels like special worship. I don't know if it's true. It just feels like special worship to me when you say, God, I'm going to do this because I trust you and I love you. And I actually don't want to, but I want you. That's beautiful worship. And we know that we're going to do it poorly. <laughs> no matter how convicted we feel or excited we feel, we're going to mess it up. And our hope is not in that. Our hope is in Christ, and our eyes are fixed on him. And when you mess it up, he's right there, and he says, why did you doubt? Come here. Our hope is in him, not in our performance. It's in that one God that Paul proclaimed in Athens. The one who has made himself known, who is near, and who has rescued us out of our sin. So let's be people who keep our eyes fixed and locked on him. So let's pray. God, you are so good to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have called us to repent and to trust in you. And God, I pray for even a person here who maybe hasn't done that. God, would you do what only you can do? Would you bring death to life? And God, for those of us who who trust you and yet stumble and struggle through our identity as proclaimers, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the people in the world around us the way that you do? Would you give us a burden for your glory in it. 
And God, give us faith to be obedient, to trust you, and to love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.